This is episode 253 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Carefully Taught, by Carrie Janelle. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Carrie Janelle is with us, along with my co-host, Bill Aho. So welcome, Carrie and Bill. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. And Bill, glad to be here. Carrie, you've done so many things. I think it would take me a long time to talk about everything that you've done. So I'll just do a brief uh, bio for you. Uh, someone... Uh, in one of the profiles about you, described you as a fountain of fabulous facts. And I thought that was actually a really good description of all the things that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about uh, one of your most recent books, which is called Carefully Taught, American History Through Broadway Musicals. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that. But you've done so many things. I do want to encourage the audience to just check out, you know, the whole breadth of the work that you've done. Some people also describe you as Mr. Radio because you've done so many radio programs. But you've also written so many books. Uh, They really cover the gamut from hillbilly music, western swing, jazz, songbooks, Broadway musicals. Uh, You have a bachelor's in radio, TV, and film from Cal State Northridge and a master's in folklore and mythology from UCLA. But one of the things I really love about learning more about you is that the headline on your LinkedIn profile is that you're a tour guide at Dodger Stadium, (laughs) Yeah, which puts the priorities in correct order. That means we we really don't have to grow up at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I feel the same, especially right now with the playoffs underway and so many really cool Cinderella stories and, and all that. Uh, But yeah, another one of my great loves besides baseball is music. And you've just done a lot of radio work in country music and blues and jazz. Uh, You're also known as having a huge collection of phono records. And you've uh, been nominated for a Grammy for the work that you did on the Rhino Records box set Washington Square Memoirs. As I understand it, you're also currently working as a discographer at UC Santa Barbara in an area that is concentrated on post-World War II country and Western recordings for Columbia Records. Yeah, so such a great array of things that you've done. It's really a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Jennifer. The book carefully taught American history through Broadway musicals has a really nice summary of the book at the beginning. And I think this these are actually your words. 
You said many of the most acclaimed musicals stemmed from real events from American history. This book includes summaries and analyses of 40 of those musicals, ranging from legendary flops to epic-changing triumphs, from off-Broadway experiments that lasted only a few weeks to venerated classics that changed the industry forever. And indeed, going through this, you see that whole gamut there. So let me ask you first, how did you come up with the idea for this book? It was a long time coming. Uh, I'm a musician as well as studying music, and I, I play the flute. And one of my great joys is getting the chance to play in a pit for mm -hmm. a Broadway musical. So one of my favorite musicals, and we'll talk about that later, is Ragtime. And I finally got asked to play in Ragtime. And when you perform a musical dozens of times over and over, you really get into the story. It really got me excited because of the integration of fictional and real personalities in that show. And I started to think about other, other shows uh, that might have incorporated real people into it or real uh, incidents from American history. And I kind of set that aside. Then I took on editing uh, a book called Broadway Musicals Show by Show. Mm. Uh, which we can talk about also, which exposed me to a lot more musicals throughout American history. When I finished editing that, the publisher asked me if I had any ideas for another book. And so I've always been a fan of The Music Man mm -hmm. uh, because of several aspects of its, uh, its storyline that reflected Meredith Wilson's growing up in Mason City, Iowa. And what I always loved was the references to popular culture that occurred in that book. And so I took apart that book line by line, song by song, and tried to analyze how people lived back then. So I presented that to my publisher, and they said, that's a great idea, but we think it might be a little restrictive. Why don't you expand on that idea and come up with some more shows that are history-based? And so that's where it springboarded from. So I decided to go through musical history and try and find an equal balance to all the different eras from the revolutionary era to today uh, and see how many I could I could come up with. Um, we finally settled on the number 40 musicals. Pretty much every decade or every, every generation is covered, which is amazing, mm -hmm. up to the 1980s when it kind of vanished. There's really been no American musicals written about American history since the 1980s. And I was wondering about that. There have been, I mean, Come From Away was about the 9-11 collapse, but that had to do more with Canada than it did with America. So I, th I think it's because of the, the rise in pop musicals, things like Jersey Boys and Beautiful, the Carol King story. Those are the, taking the place of historically based musicals today, and those are pretty prevalent today. But uh, up until the 1980s, you had something covering just about every war, every era, so many presidents and personalities. They've all been on Broadway, which tells me that if storytelling is the, the mark of a good musical, there's a lot of stories out there in real life. You don't have to create something. Take it from history. So what you're saying is there are musicals that are being written now, but they're about previous eras there's not anything being written that covers like our contemporary time. Correct. Yeah. And it's, it's not for the want of proper stories of great stories. I mean, whatever your political bent is, my goodness, the, the, the whole Trump era is, is, is a veritable King Lear. Right. And somebody should write a musical. Yeah. About it to be a hit. 
Yeah, I hereby throw that challenge out to our audience. Yeah, get to work because there's a lot that's happened in the last 40 years that I think merits a musical. How interesting. Sure. I hadn't noticed that and it seems, yeah, kind of surprising. That should be great if it ever happens. Yeah, it seems like there'd be lots of, uh, and good action, right? <laughs> Fighting and conflict and uncivil war and all kinds of things. The, the characters, I mean, it just writes itself. <laughs> a, lot of, yeah. lot of, a lot of comedy in there, I think. I think oh, yeah. so, oh, too. Yeah. Right? Kind, of, kind of slapstick. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are musicals, but they're way, way off Broadway. And I right. <laughs> yeah, right. The whole social media, AI. Come on, yeah. people, get to work. <laughs> so Carefully Taught, uh, which is part of the title of the book, is a very famous song from South Pacific. And the song itself is actually fairly dark about how we learn about prejudice and to hate all the people our relatives hate. I've always been surprised at how explicit that song is about bias and racism. Can you place it for us in the context of the musical and also how it was performed? Yes, uh, South Pacific is is thought of as being a romantic atmospheric musical set on an island in the South Pacific during World War II, based on James Michener's stories. But really its overreaching theme is about racism. And uh, this is where Oscar Hammerstein's old personal views got into the act. Now in the show, uh, the song is sung by Lieutenant Joseph Cable. He is a U.S. Marine officer who's transferred from Guadalcanal and comes to the island. And he falls in love with this Tonkinese girl named Liat. But he's faced with the choice of taking her home to the United States with him after, after the war, and he balks. And in this scene where he does the song, he's having a conversation with Emile de Beck, who's the French planter, who's played by Ezio Pinzo, who's in love with Mary Martin. And he explains how he, he just can't help himself. He can't bring her home. Not because he doesn't love her, but because of how they will be treated when they return home. And it's really frustrating him. And so he sings, you've got to be carefully taught. And he explains how racism is not born with you. It's taught to you the line that he sings in one of the stanzas, you've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. It's not a long song. It's barely a minute in length, but it was enough to enrage theaters in the South. And they ordered it excised from the score whenever South Pacific was shown. But this really shows Oscar Hammerstein, who liked to insert his own personal views into the show's uh, somehow. And this this song had a, a, a dramatic impact, as short as it was. It really pointed out the theme of the entire musical. Yeah, I was really astonished when I read that uh, when that musical was performed in the South, that they would leave out that song. That surprised me. I, you know, when you see examples of this, it's, someone like me, you know, is fairly naive about these things. I was surprised. But that's the kind of information that you provide in this book that I think is really interesting, you know, not just the historical accuracy, uh, but also things that happened around the musical. Even in that case, how some of the uh, lyricists were chosen, you know, just really interesting information about each of the musicals. Sure. And context is everything 
when talking about uh, American musicals is you have to look at the times that they were written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there, there are musicals that happened, like Hair happened during the Vietnam War, of course, and it was about the Vietnam War. But there are other shows like Shenandoah, which I talk about, which was about the Civil War, but it took place during the 1960s, during the civil rights movement. And so there were there were kind of some some points that were being made then to point out uh, the not really the civil rights movement, but the Vietnam War was getting started then. And the whole idea of Shenandoah was that here's a man who lives in the South, but he has no bones with either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has sons who he doesn't want to get killed in the war. Mm-hmm. Nothing's happened to them. Why should he fight? Mm-hmm. And it isn't until one of his sons is kidnapped by the North when he was playing around with a Confederate cap that he'd found uh, that he decides to get into it because it affected him personally now. So people started to think about that because of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We have no no fight with, with the Vietnamese. Why, why should we, we go defend them? Uh, they're not threatening our country. So that was the, the equivalence mm-hmm. in that show, even though the story had nothing to do with what was going on today. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about art is that there are different prisms through which you can view it. And it's really helpful to have somebody like you with your expertise to, you know, kind of enlighten us or give us some slightly different looks through that prism. You know, it's it's an indication of the complexity of art and how interesting it is. When they take things out of a musical or, or make the composer change words, I've been reading a little bit of uh, in my research about the censorship that's happened in some of the old Broadway stuff. And it goes back to Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and things like that. There's a lot about that. Um, the Music Man is something I always turn back to. And when The Music Man is staged now, of course, it was written in 1957, and there was a different way of thinking back then. In fact, today, it's been longer since The Music Man was written than the time that The Music Man was concerning itself with between that time and 1957. So, I mean, that was 45 <laughs> years different. Now we're 65 years mm. away from the music man itself. But um, there's a scene uh, in the gymnasium when the, the, the little girls in the town are dressed up like Indians and they're part of the wonton yi group. Uh, they come marching on and they're dressed in Indian regalia. And uh, it's kind of a cute little sequence, but there are those who are bent on being politically correct that think that that's offensive to Indians. And I went back and researched the Watan Yi group, and it was an actual society back then that assisted homeless women and girls and was a, a very beneficial society. So it wasn't anything to be ashamed of at all. But there are censors out there that want to censor things that they think will be offensive to people. So sometimes they they are correct and sometimes they're not. And I think in this case, they're not. Yeah, I think it happened more than people realize in productions and stuff, whether it's uh, Broadway or even just in general. It's kind of sad that their vision gets changed sometimes. Yeah, and I hate when that happens. I hate when when they change something in a musical for no other reason than to not want to offend people. And it offends me because they changed it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the offensive part of it. And it happens a lot. It happens a lot, unfortunately. And, and no one looks at perspective, like you talked about earlier, about based on those times. And those times were different than the times now. And the conversation shouldn't be about how bad it is, but 
explain to people why it's bad to their kids, but keep it in there so it can come up. Yeah. I remember I, I, I reviewed a local performance of the Mikado, which is a classic Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. And I got an angry letter from some actors on the west side of, of Los Angeles complaining how Mikado was racist because it involved white actors performing in yellow face is what they called it. Hmm. But this is what Gilbert and Sullivan did. And the whole idea was satire. And so these people didn't look at it carefully enough. They just see what's on the surface and decided, okay, it's politically correct for us to be offended by that. But there really wasn't any good reason for it. But that's, that's, there's a lot of knee jerk kind of <laughs> reaction to musicals this way. Yeah. And it's mostly due to ignorance. A lot of it's due to ignorance. Which is why explaining the history behind these things and the context is so important. My overriding memory of sort of mm, objectionable things about the music man is that during a convocation in my high school in which they were advertising the high school production of the music man, I'm going to date myself here. A young man decided it would be appropriate to streak across the stage <laughs> during that convocation, which, of course, that's all we could talk about. I really totally lost sight of the fact that there was a, a high school production of The Music Man, and instead we all had to talk about how this young man had taken off his clothes and streaked across the stage. I think it was, you know, they had timed it. So there was some line in there about the morality of young men or something like that. And oh, then, yeah. Zoom, yeah. <laughs> he ran <laughs> naked across the stage. <laughs> of the 40 musicals that you cover in your book, are there any that stand out to you as being particularly egregious in their misrepresentation of history or any that you think were unusually accurate? Well, it's it, there's poetic license taken with most shows based sure. on history, and for a variety of reasons. So some some are practical, some are subjective. For example, Sherman Edwards, he wrote 1776, uh, which was about the, the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. Now, Sherman Edwards was a high school history teacher. In putting this show on the stage, he was faced with a lot of problems. Uh, in dramatizing that. Uh, and these were practical problems. Mm. Uh, for example, in reality, there were 56 delegates who attended the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Now, that's far too many people for a Broadway stage. The audience will never get to know all of them in, you know, in a two, two and a half hour time span. So uh, he reduced the number to 20. That was more manageable. Also, there's some things in the show that happened that he changed um, there's a scene where Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, comes to Philadelphia to spend some romantic time with her newly wedded husband. But if you look at history, it shows that, well, the Jeffersons had been married for some months now, and Martha had just recently suffered a miscarriage. So in reality, Jefferson left Philadelphia and went to see her oh. uh, in the middle of the, of the deliberations. Well, Edwards didn't think this would work dramatically. He wanted to keep the action mm -hmm. in the courthouse there in Independence Hall. And so um, and, and so they changed it. Edwards felt badly enough about these changes that he made that he included an explanation in the show's printed program as to mm. what he changed and why. So th this was deliberately done, and he felt bad about that, but it was for dramatic effect. Mm -hmm. In that case, the writer was conscious of the changes that he felt needed to be made. Now... Here's one that answers your question about egregious errors. 
And this takes place with, has to do with the 1949 musical Miss Liberty, which was about the Statue of Liberty coming to America. And this might have been the most egregious offender of history of all, and it shouldn't have been. But egos got in the way, mm. and instead of using the wonderfully dramatic and warm stories from history, the book writer, whose name was Robert Sherwood, and Irving Berlin, who was the composer, changed the story entirely, and they came up with a highly flawed fabrication that resulted in Moss Hart, who was the director, resigning from the production. Oh. And it was fraught with problems. Whenever you have constant personnel changes, you know that a, mm. a show is doomed. And that's what happened with that. History shows that there was a fund drive to raise money to have the pedestal constructed for the statue to sit on mm -hmm. when it was finally shipped to America. It was shipped in pieces and they had to reassemble it. That's what happened in reality. So Joseph Pulitzer, who was the publisher of the New York World, decided to have his, his editorial writers compose emotionally charged pieces about the, the statue's significance and trying to encourage New Yorkers of all strata to contribute to this fund. And rich people donated their salaries and little kids took nickels out of their, out of their piggy banks. And it was tremendously exciting and heartwarming to read about how they did this. But when Miss Liberty was written, all, all of this was thrown out the window. They had a great story already prepared about this 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 grassroots production to raise support for this wonderful statue. So they came up with a cockamamie story about a reporter in the world searching for the New York world searching for the model who posed for the statue. And she was in Paris, kind of portrayed as an unsuspecting Eliza Doolittle and brings her to America, finds her, brings to America. She doesn't know why. It was an accident that she held up her hand to make it look like she was holding the lamp anyway. Sherwood then changes the story to reflect a newspaper war between the world and the New York Herald to see who could scoop the other. And so they threw all the facts crazy. out. Crazy. Yeah, they crazy. came up with this other story that was all convoluted. And to follow this, Irving Berlin always had problems writing songs that integrated into a story. Uh, he wasn't the greatest Broadway songwriter, although he was involved in great Broadway shows, such as yeah. Annie Get Your Gun. But look at one of the most famous songs in Annie Get Your Gun. There's no business like show business. Now, how many people know that that song is from Annie Get Your Gun, a show about Annie Oakland? It's a time-honored song, but had nothing to do with the story. Nothing at all. How many people can name that association. Mm -hmm. But he put it in there because Berlin was interested in hits. He uh -huh. wanted a song. That goes back to his early days as a Tin Pan Alley songwriter. So his stubbornness helped sink the show as well. He didn't want to change anything in Miss Liberty. He thought he had the new God Bless America. Oh. May the good Lord help and keep you, I think was it. And he'd already set up a fund, a nonprofit fund in name of the song. And the show just died because oh. it just fell apart because it was so poorly thought out and didn't relate to what was a really wonderful history lesson. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it would. I mean, I have a vague, a vague recollection of of hearing about that, about that there was a collection for the pedestal of it. And yes, indeed. Very patriotic and, you know, heartwarming. Would have right? been yeah, it would have yeah. been great. Yeah, how dumb. The accurate musicals, lots of them. There have been great accurate musicals. The best was probably Hamilton. Okay. Uh, but there are others as well that were meticulous in getting it right. Smaller musicals like Parade, 
mm-hmm. which was about the uh, the murder of Mary Fagan in Georgia, the pencil factory worker. Uh, Floyd Collins about the spelunker who was uh, trapped in mm-hmm. a cave in Kentucky. Those are small musicals, really should have been off-Broadway. Um, but uh, in fact, Parade just had a revival on Broadway. Those oh, are very great. accurate. And Fiorello, the story of the New York mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, was uh, paid attention to to the facts of the case and only made a few exceptions to the rule. So it happens. And in, in the case of, of Miss Liberty, it was personalities that got in the way. Yeah, what a shame. All right, so let's talk about ha- Hamilton. Uh, this mega hit from a Lin-Manuel Miranda that many of my listeners, I'm sure, have seen, although I have not, actually. Uh, its, ra- its run began in 2015 and continues until today, which I didn't realize that. It's almost an unimaginable success. Uh, the protagonist is founding father and banker Alexander Hamilton, who notoriously died in a duel with longtime enemy Aaron Burr, which most people have heard about. And that inspired Miranda to use hip hop as the medium for his biography. So tell me what you find interesting about the musical, either as a history lesson or on its musical merits. Hamilton is an integrated musical in the truest sense on on two levels. Integrated in that the use of hip-hop music and rap vocals just about made dialogue unnecessary. And this Mm. was the revolution that it created. All the pertinent action is reflected in the patter. And the other aspect of integration that it used was in the casting, where he deliberately crossed color and race barriers in his casting, which was meant to reflect the broad ethnic palette of, of American culture. What amazed me about Hamilton, though, was its accuracy. Uh, Miranda went to great lengths to study the history of Alexander Hamilton and his times uh, and strayed very little about how things actually occurred. He did such a good job at this that the musical is used in history classes now to teach about this period in American history. And what musicals are there that do that? Yeah. That good. He didn't have to. He could have done what Robert Sherwood did with Miss Liberty, and but he, he made it dramatic. He knew how to do it. Now, he'd used hip-hop before. He did it in In the Heights, which was his previous musical, but that was only used for one character, for Usnavi, who was the, the, the major character of the show. In Hamilton, everybody raps. For a time, its success led many to believe that it would even rival Oklahoma in its revolutionizing of hip-hop being used as in the place of recitative and dialogue. It was thought when it came out in 2015, we'd have a bunch of copycats and songs that are using hip hop as well, but it hasn't happened. Mm. And even though it's won numerous Tonys and, and sales have been constant and it's been sold out for nearly a decade, I have not seen any evidence of other shows to this point using rap as a, a storytelling device, as popular as the musical form is today. So it tells me a little bit that maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda is the only one that knows how to do it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it still remains to be seen. But Oklahoma's reverberations have lasted for 80 years now. It created the integrated musical. I mean, after Oklahoma, the two musicals that changed Broadway the most were Hair mm-hmm. and Hamilton. Those were the two. And so tell me how. Well, with Hair, it was the fact that it, it didn't have a story. It's describing a culture. Yeah. There's no progression here. It's almost like a review. Mm. Um, it's the first rock musical. 
those that say, well, what about Bye Bye Birdie? Bye Bye Birdie had nothing to do with rock. Uh-huh. It had to do with pop culture at the time that it was written, but the score had nothing to do with rock and roll. Hair was the first time that Broadway started appealing to a younger audience. And also the diversity of musical styles that was used in Hair. Mm-hmm. You have jazz, you have country, you have gospel, you have soul jazz. You've, you've got, uh, it's just an amazing array of songs that are included in that show. And it was totally revolutionary for its time, and it still is today. Hair is an extremely important musical, and mm-hmm. I talk about that in the, in the book. Yeah, one of the things you talk about, about Hamilton, which I thought was really interesting, was that it kind of, I mean, it's not as though it was grassroots funded, but it did sort of evolve. Like, it seemed as though Miranda started with some smaller set pieces in which he was sort of experimenting with this possibility, and then it seemed to grow from that. It grew from one song. Uh, and then it became kind of a concert version, uh, and it just kind of exploded from there. Um, same thing happened with um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's first musical, which was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which was originally just supposed to be a concertized uh, expression of the story of Joseph. And and things develop. That's mm-hmm. all. And Hamilton did that way. It, it grew and grew, and he performed it uh, personally for President Obama, and it was a success. And so Broadway was the next next obvious uh, place for it. Yeah, which I mean, that's a great story that it that it was recognized and grew from the enthusiasm of the audience. Yeah, that's such a nice thing. And then speaking of Oklahoma, that was another thing that surprised me in your book was that so many of the songs were changed from the original intention of that musical. Well, it wasn't a musical. Originally, it was a play called Green Grow the Lilacs. And it was based on the memories of of the writer, Leslie Riggs, who grew up in Oklahoma. And what he wanted the story to do was to honor the cowboy songs that he grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so you have Red River Valley, you have, you know, uh, Streets of Laredo. Mm-hmm. All these traditional cowboy songs were sung in the show. Uh, but it wasn't a musical. It was a play with musical interludes. Okay. That was, that was basically what Green Grow the Lilacs was. And it was a moderate success. And, and like most plays were at that time, didn't last very long. And this was in the early years of the Depression when this happened, 1931, I think it was, 1930. And then uh, it was decided uh, that, uh, well, Green Grow the Lilacs was revived. In fact, John Ford was supposed to direct it, and John Wayne was supposed to star. Oh, gee. Early. <laughs> Might have been a little uh, different. <laughs> he was replaced by Franchet Tone, another, another actor. And it was presented at the Westport Country Playhouse in Westport, Connecticut. The um, the producer decided to invite his neighbor to come see it, and his neighbor was Richard Rogers. Ah, so Richard Rogers goes to see Green Grow the Lilacs, and he thinks, "Hey, this might be make a good musical." Now he was partners with Lawrence Hart back then, and he talked to Hart about it, and Hart didn't want to be involved in what he called a hillbilly play. That's what I remember. Yeah, I have nothing <laughs> to do with this hillbilly music. Yeah. <laughs> Hart, Hart was suffering from depression at that time. He was he had problems with his self-identity. He was a closet gay at the time, and uh, he was really in bad, bad shape. And so he couldn't bring about the, the opportunity to do it. So Rogers had to go find somebody else, and he ended up with Oscar Hammerstein. And 
the first thing they decided to do is get rid of all the cowboy songs. And they wrote an entirely new score. It's funny because the, the irony is that the show came about because of this devotion to those old songs, and none of them made it into the final product. Right. Yeah. Although, I mean, obviously it was a raging, raging success. Yes. Yeah. And that was because of the integration of the songs into the story, along mm -hmm. with the dance of Agnes DeMille. I was interested in your analysis of Annie, Get Your Gun, and some of the liberties that the writers took with history. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Here again, we have a musical in which Irving Berlin, not the best songwriter for Broadway, uh, was written the score. And he's used to writing hit songs, not making songs work within a storyline. And Annie Gutcher Gun shows this a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, as successful as it was, it ran for well over a thousand performances. You don't see it much today. It was revived in, I think, the early part of this century, but uh, not really much action since then. And I think it's because it hasn't dated well at mm -hmm. all. It was really a, a product of World War II. Its, its creators were the sibling team of Herbert and Dorothy Fields. And they thought at the end of World War II, this is 1946, might be a good selling point to feature a woman with a gun to capitalize on women's role in the war. So they turned it into a rags to riches story in which Annie Oakley is seen at the beginning of the show as this disheveled, ignorant, but brash teenager with a talent for accuracy in target practice. Well, in reality, Annie was a runaway orphan uh, who had escaped her caretakers who had been physically and mentally abusing her. Uh, she was not brash. She was kind of retiring and shy. But Dorothy Fields saw Ethel Merman as Annie Oakley. And this is one of the first times when a show was written specifically for an actor. Mm -hmm. And um, retiring and shy are just not in Merman's resume. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so they changed her. And to this day, I mean, after that came out, it was like in Gypsy. The family just objected and they, they didn't want anything to do with the show. Gypsy Rose Lee was her mother, Mama Rose, in the show was recreated uh, to do something else. And the family, especially um, Gypsy's sister, yeah. uh, June Havoc, deliberately asked the producers, because it's so off to what my mother was like, I want you to call it a musical fable mm -hmm. instead of a musical. So if you look at the, the, the title, the, uh, the, all the, the signs advertising Gypsy, it'll always say Gypsy, a musical fable to show it's not true. Anyway, they also changed in Annie Get Your Gun, Annie's relationship with Frank Butler, who was her husband at the time. Now, all the overriding theme of Annie Get Your Gun is this rivalry between the two and how Frank Butler, it's kind of like a star is born where he resents her success and he doesn't want her to win. He doesn't want her to succeed, sabotaging her and, and all this. There was really no competition between Annie and Frank in real life. Uh, he supported his wife's activities, but the Fieldses needed some conflict in the yeah. story, so they manufactured this rivalry. And that's where Irving Berlin comes in. Uh, he was talking to Richard Rogers about it, and, and Berlin was always jealous of Rogers' success on Broadway. And so he played him the score of songs that he had written, and Rogers said, well, hey, you need a challenge song for these two. Why don't you come up with something? So it didn't come out of the story. It came out of Rogers' challenge that Berlin wrote Anything that you can do, I can do better. Oh, right. That's what I that forgot about from. that. Sure. It came from his competitiveness with Richard Rogers, who he was jealous of. 
So it was Rogers who actually suggested this to Berlin. So that's that's how characters change. It depends on who's writing it and what they think is dramatic and what they think it isn't. I think Annie Get Your Gun could have been more relevant to today if they'd kept her as she was, because she was one of the first champions of emancipation for women mm-hmm. before the suffragette movement of the 1920s. Uh, and that would have made a great story. She could have still been brash a little bit, but uh, they made her an ignorant hillbilly in this show. And I think they could have done a better job of it. It's funny how Irving Berlin is always around when this happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, and the thing that was a little, mm, I don't know, made me pause was that had totally worked on me. I thought Annie Oakley was this, you know, brash, uh, in-your-face kind of person. And so when I read your book, I was surprised. I didn't realize that she was, in fact, a very different kind of person and how lovely that she was supported by her husband, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, again, it's a you know, the nicer story gets lost because we must have conflict and drama and, and right. all that, as though there isn't enough conflict and drama in the world as it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems like there's enough around. History's <laughs> doing it for you. They're doing all, all <laughs> the pre-research for you. Just go with it. Yeah, so that was that was interesting to me. And I, I could be mistaken, but I think she's also represented in the recent TV series Deadwood. I think she's in there. And and again, she's presented as this very aggressive in your face. I think she's actually a drunkard in that series. Let's not forget Buffalo Bill, because he's totally misrepresented in that show. He is the stereotype of an Indian who doesn't speak in complete sentences and says ugh and how and and all this stuff. And he was a, a, a very erudite, well-spoken businessman uh, who really started the vaudeville business in the in the late 19th century. But they, they treat him like an ignorant Indian. And that, that's the most offensive thing at all, of all. Yeah, it really turns into propaganda, doesn't it? It's sort of reinforcing people's stereotypes and yeah. yeah even when it's not you know not accurate right right your description of the initial reception of showboat is uh, really fascinating i just have to mention again you know your write-ups and background information are just so thorough and really interesting right the things that you decide to focus on are are really helpful and and interesting to the reader so tell me what was innovative about showboat People don't recognize Showboat as a historical musical, but I, I, I go beyond the characters to determine where this story, where the stories come from. Mm-hmm. So that's why I use Oklahoma, which didn't have real characters in it, and the Music Man, which didn't have real characters in it, or Gyps, uh, well, Gypsy did, but these kinds of shows represent an era in American history, and that's what I was looking at. And Showboat was the dawn of the entertainment business. Mm-hmm. Back in the days when there was no travel by train or automobile or airplane, the only way that shows could tour was by water. And so that's how these showboats started. Uh, a boat would start at the top of the Mississippi River, and they'd put on Shakespeare and all other kinds of productions, and they'd sail down the river. And when they got to New Orleans, they scrapped the ship and they went back up to uh, to Minnesota or wherever, built another ship and started all over again. Crazy. This is kind of hard to sail up the river back then. <laughs> yeah. With, with a riverboat, uh, the way they were. It was a really interesting era uh, in show business. And showboats actually existed. 
Now, it's a fascinating musical to me, especially because when you look at the context of how out of place it was when it came out in 1927, you have to understand what musical comedy was like in the 1920s. It was still in its initial stage of development, an outgrowth of Viennese operettas, very lighthearted shows. A Broadway show of its time, uh, the story would deal with the frivolous lives of the well-off. That was basically it. Musicals were meant to be escapes for Americans. They didn't want to see people who were unhappy. They wanted to see lavish costumes and expansive production numbers and leggy chorus girls. And this is why Florence Ziegfeld became popular at that time. That's what he recognized people wanted to see. And the songs were basically treated like those seen in musical reviews. There would be a, a lighthearted sketch and then someone would sing a song and then they'd go to another scene. There was very little relationship between song and story. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect is that all these musicals, all the characters were all white and all the actors were all white. That's what Broadway was like. So here comes Showboat. It's based on Edna Ferber's novel, and everything about it was different. Instead of a lighthearted comedy, you had a serious show that dealt with taboo subjects. You had miscegenation, which was still against the law in 29 states. You had single mothers. You had alcoholism. You had compulsive gambling. Plus, the, it had an integrated cast. You had major roles played by a major role by a black couple. Paul Robeson played Joe, the mm -hmm. stevedore. And in Showboat, they had two romantic couples. They were white, and they all went all through all kinds of problems during the show. And you had Joe and Queenie. And Joe and Queenie, the black couple, that was the stable relationship. The others were the ones that featured upheavals. The songs, instead of being lightweight production numbers, helped propel the plot by either illuminating a character's feelings or revealing some plot element. That's what integration means. Mm -hmm. And this was also unique for this time. So now we have a fully integrated show on two levels, mm -hmm. blacks and whites acting together on the same stage, and the blacks are not seen in stereotypical behavior or, or roles, kind of noble, in fact, mm -hmm. and a score that is integral to the plot. We also had, for the first time, changing arcs for the characters. Before Showboat, characters were the same at the end of the show as they were at the beginning. Oh. Just think about the changes characters go through in musicals today. The stuffy, officious captain in The Sound of Music, he changes. The obsessive baseball fanatic in Damn Yankees, he realizes the value of his marriage. The reclusive mother in Ragtime, she learns to stand on her own and, and fight for civil rights and, and for her own abilities to live her own life. All these grew within the arc of the story, and this all started with Showboat. Hmm. In fact, all of the major characters change in Showboat, except... Joe and Queenie, the black couple, they turn out to have the most stable of any of the relationships and the most stable personalities. Well, audiences didn't know what to do with all this change when yeah. <laughs> made its debut, and they walked out of it stunned. They didn't know what to make of it. Finally, the critics came out with their reviews, and they were just praising it to the high heavens, and that's when the tickets started to sell and people flocked to the theater to see it. So it changed immediately. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of springtime for Hitler. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh -huh. When the audience, you can the audience with their mouths open, staring at the, at, and then they realize, oh, this is funny, and yeah. it became a hit unintentionally a hit. Well, it was intentional. Uh, I mean, Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein did wonders with his show, and um, it, it was due to Hammerstein. 
Hammerstein wanted to humanize African Americans and bring about these these complex issues that Americans really uh, experience, but it had been ignored on Broadway. It took 16 years for this to take hold because between that time and Oklahoma, the old style of musical was still going on. Rogers oh. and Beatles, all their musicals were still lighthearted comedies. But the first sign of this changing was 1940 when Pal Joey came out. That's the first time we had a hero who was a rat. Mm-hmm. That never happened before. Uh-huh. <laughs> Played by Gene Kelly. So Showboat was not just a forerunner. It was a forerunner by a long time. Oh, yeah. 16 years. Wow. It was Oklahoma that directly resulted in the change in Broadway. Mm -hmm. Showboat was the first to do it, but it was so far ahead of its time, it took Mm -hmm. a couple of decades for it to take hold. I think I wrote more pages about Showboat than any other show in, in the book. Yeah, it's really fascinating to read all that. I had no idea. It, it's so interesting that when there's something innovative like that, well, that it took 16 years, but that the audience were audiences were so thunderstruck, right? They didn't, none of them really were brave enough to, or at least there weren't groups of them that were brave enough to think on their own and recognize it. Well, put yourself in their place. I mm-hmm. mean, how would you feel if, if all you'd seen were these, these, these lightweight musical reviews. I mean, Oklahoma had that kind of impact too, because before Oklahoma, every time the curtain opens on act one, the first thing you see is a Zinkfeld kind of chorus line with girls kicking their legs and brash music coming out. And how does Oklahoma start? Curtain opens and there's one woman sitting on stage and she's churning butter and that's it. You hear Curly singing off stage. It starts. That was the first sign that Oklahoma was different. Uh-huh. Didn't start the way other musicals started. My last question for you is uh, a personal question. Uh, and that is, can you name a musical that you uh, particularly like yourself? I've, I've mentioned them before. I talk about a little bit more now. And that's Ragtime and The Music Man are probably my two favorite musicals. Ragtime because a lot of elements of it that I, that I just love. It moves me so much. Uh, I lead my own ragtime orchestra, so I know the music mm-hmm. very well. And I've talked with Stephen Flaherty, who composed the score, along with Lynn Ahrens, who is the lyricist. And they deliberately decided to make the score reflect the music of its time. And that's something that a lot of musicals don't do. They write Broadway music. They don't right. write music that occurred at that time. And most of the songs in ragtime reflect that. They have that slight lilt and the syncopation of ragtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's hidden, but you can hear it if you listen for it. Hmm. Uh, and also ragtime's integration of fictional and real-life characters. that That's something that was brand new for its time. And finally, how relevant ragtime still continues to be in today's society. Even though it's talking about an era of over 100 years ago, look what was going on back then. You had real problems dealt with by real people. You had racism. You had unwed mothers, you had the subservience of women, um, emancipation of women, you had vigilantism, entrepreneurship, the frustrations of bureaucracy, the sensationalizing of celebrities. It's all there. Mm. And it all rings true today. The Music Man, I love because of its language, as I said, I, I still have to find a publisher for that, that book that I've oh. been on, on the lore and the language. But also the things that are beneath the surface, when you've seen The Music Man a lot of times, you start to realize some things. It's thought of as a very lighthearted comedy. 
about a lovable flim-flam man who gets his foot caught in the door when he romances the local librarian. But it really tells us a lot about this seemingly bucolic, nostalgic little town in Iowa where Meredith Wilson grew up, uh, where all its citizens are quirky and funny and lovable, and in the end, it's all as well that ends well. But all is not well in River City. Meredith Wilson wrote the story about his own upbringing in Mason City, Iowa, and inadvertently revealed some things about life in 1912 that are not very tasteful today. Hmm. For instance, there's racism against minorities. Now, remember the character of Tommy Gillis? He's the one that sets off the firecracker. He's the hoodlum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The gym. Well, what does the mayor say about him? Well, he comes from the south part of town. His father is a day laborer. They live on the wrong side of town. His father is looked down upon by the community. The name Gilis is Serbian. Oh, yeah, that's right. Probably an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. And they were being ostracized. Now, also ostracized were women. Marion Peru was ostracized because of very vicious gossip about being single at the age of 26, about working for a living, and having a relationship with old Miser Madison, who's kind of the Mr. Potter, you know, it's a wonderful life. Women weren't supposed to work back then, and Marion not only works, she has two jobs. She works in the library, and she's a music teacher. And so the pick a little, talk a little ladies are constantly gossiping about her and spreading rumors. And they also support book banning. Think about it. Cherished literature by Balzac, Chaucer, and Rabelais. Rabelais, even though it's obvious they've never read any of them, they want them banned. These are dirty books, they're saying. Let's get rid of the dirty books. How is justice meted out in River City? Well, if you do something they don't like, there's no trial. You get tarred and feathered and you get ridden out of town on a rail. There could be hangings and lynchings if you're not the right person in River City. How about Winthrop? Now, originally, uh, the character of Winthrop was based on a paraplegic that Meredith Wilson knew as he was growing up. This got changed to a little boy with a lisp. Oh, yeah. But he was stigmatized by this. He was bullied Uh, He was laughed at. He was so severely traumatized that now he can't even speak. He's a six-year-old that's afraid of himself, afraid of everybody. So there's some very dark, serious things going on in River City that most people don't think think about. Uh, This is kind of a frightening society when you think about it a lot. But I love Music City because of the richness of the songs. I love the the fact that that Wilson created songs that were musical counterpoints with one another. 76 trombones and Goodnight My Someone are the same song, just mm-hmm, sung mm-hmm. Different, different meter at different tempos. And those were done for deliberately. There were other pairs of songs that I, that I talk about in there. So those are my two, um, two favorite musicals. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, both of you if there were albums of musicals in your house when you were growing up. And if you knew the musical from the albums before you knew the musicals as musicals because that was definitely my experience yeah when i was a kid i I knew the difference between a cast album and uh an original soundtrack okay Mm -hmm. there were different so we had both versions of music man we had both versions of oklahoma both versions of south pacific i I always thought that and my fair lady i always thought that the cast albums were better Uh than the originals always it always went Broadway to film, Broadway to film. Today, it's different. It's mm-hmm. film to Broadway. You have uh-huh. Legal Bond, you have the Adams Family, you know, all, that's what's happening today. And, and now, Back to the Future. 
It goes from the movie to Broadway. People aren't surprised by a story anymore. They go into the show knowing what the story is. Mm -hmm. I, I liked it the other way around. I liked it being introduced on Broadway. But as a kid, I learned those those shows from the record albums. Mm -hmm. Never saw Broadway musicals when I was a kid. No, me I neither. Up in California, all these shows were in New York. They were too expensive to to go see. I don't think I saw a musical until maybe I was ten years old when there was a musical version of The Wizard of Oz that was staged once. But no, it wasn't until much later. But uh, I always wanted to, to see them because mm -hmm. I never knew the stories. I just knew the songs. Yeah, same for me. So I would try and figure out what the stories were from the songs. And yeah, I think I had some pretty strong uh, yeah, confusion and misunderstandings as a result of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I think one of the earliest ones that I saw live, I think my dad took me to see it was Hair. Really? Yeah, I think they performed that. And, and that was one of the first How old ones were you then? Eight, nine. Eight, they took you to see hair at eight or nine. Yeah, yeah. My dad was, yeah, he was a very open-minded guy. He really good for was, yeah. good for dad. Yeah, yeah, he he really was. The whole thing about hair is oh, the nude scene at the end of uh, right, one. exactly. Yeah, and that <laughs> that wouldn't bother him. When I finally saw hair, I was actually working on a songbook of the revival in two thousand nine, and I worked with James Rado, who wrote co-wrote the lyrics with the show, and so he invited me to the to the revival. Mm -hmm. What is the nude scene going to look like? It, it wasn't much at all. It was no, all, it's oh, it's done in silhouette. It's very fleeting at the end of the at the end of the act, and you you think you see what you see, and then you realize you did, but by that time they're all gone. <laughs> they dash off stays. So it's it's very tastefully done. At least yeah, right. as usual, it's a bunch <laughs> of hullabaloo about not much. Yeah. What a if, if you pardon the expression, what a trip that was seeing hair live. Uh huh. Uh -huh. It was like I was back in the 60s. It was so cool. And so many, I mean, there's so many, what I remember is there's so much hair. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of hair, but there's a lot of songs too. Twice as many songs as any other show. Oh, really? They threw out twice more. Wow. They were constantly replacing songs in that show, I learned from, from Rado. Huh. Uh, and the songs didn't have any beginning. They didn't have any end. They yeah. flowed into one another. Oh, just an amazing show. Still is. Still uh -huh. is. Yeah, but it creates an ambiance, right, that was appropriate for that time. Yeah. Serious subjects, uh -huh. but it's, it's dealt with it with such joy mm -hmm. and exuberance. This is the it was it was based on an actual event that took place in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco called the Human Bee In. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where they got the idea to do it. So even that was based on history. Yeah, true. How about you, Bill? Did you grow up with any of these albums in your household? Uh, not really, but I do remember, I think it was West Side Story, I think might have oh, been there. Yeah. Because that was kind of tells the story itself in the in the soundtrack as it is. So that one I'm familiar with pretty much. But I like musicals and stuff, but it's just I didn't really grow up with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just on TV and things like that. I wanted to congratulate Carrie on, I noticed that you got one of your grails of 78s the other day when you said you got a showboat record that you were really looking for. I, I can, I got to bring that over to show you because I just got <laughs> it. So this is the very first Broadway cast album. Whoa. It's based on the first revival of showboat, which was 1932. And this is a four pocket, 12 inch 78 set it weighs about four pounds it is beautiful and it was put out by brunswick brunswick records 
Nice. And so there's Paul Robeson and Helen Morgan in it. And that was an experiment by Brunswick. They wanted people to experience the show in their own homes. Mm -hmm. So they put a lot of the songs on here. It wasn't the entire original cast. Robeson and Helen Morgan were in it, but the others were Brunswick stock singers and everything. But I've been looking for this for years. And, That's cool. Uh, and finally got it. And it came with a window card of Helen Morgan saying, come to the store and we'll play this, her songs for you in the store. Wow. Oh. That wasn't in the original album. So I was, I didn't pay a lot for it either. The shows were big bucks. <laughs> and it was a deal. I'm really tickled. Yeah, I only paid 30 bucks for it. Oh, yeah, that's great. And it came to you on Shattered because I know with 78s, that's the hardest thing to do is ship a 78 for a lot of people. Especially 12-inch 78s. They're Ooh. really hard. So the guy was really glad when I said, I'll come pick it up. He was uh -huh. in Glendale, which is on my way to work. So I, I, I picked it up from him yesterday. And I just love it. Perfect. Wow, that's great. Well, Carrie, before I let you go, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience or refer them to? Just that if you want to know about my books, I have a, a page on Amazon uh, for uh, most of them. Um, my book is called Carefully Taught. It's published by Applause Books, and you can get it uh, through Amazon. Um, also, um, the book that triggered that was this series. I've, I've done three editions of Broadway musicals show by show, which has one-page capsule discussions of the merits of each of the shows in the book. It doesn't cover every show, but it covers all the important shows that go back to the beginning of musical theater in 1866. It looks pretty thick, so there must be a lot of them in there. Now, Stanley Green wrote the book in 1985, and he kept updating it every few years, but he finally passed away, and uh, after that, his wife edited it, and then she passed away, so then they gave it to me. So I've been editing it the last 15 years. Oh, gee. So every show since 2008, I've profiled in here and they just repeat all the other shows, but uh -huh. this is available on Amazon too. And it's still a pretty good seller. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure to meet you and learn more about your work. And thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. And thank you for some good questions. Thank you, Carrie. And keep up the good work, man. I'd love to, love to talk to you about music someday, just in general. I mean, I'm sure you could teach us all something. Well, I'm always learning myself, so <laughs> you never stop. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.